Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, highlighting developments in federal and state healthcare reform and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro with the Legal Consulting Group. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. The Bar on Healthcare is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare, subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave us a review. And The Bar is open. We have been closed for renovations the last couple of weeks, but we are back. Pull up a stool. We're happy you're with us. Hope you like the new intro music. And when last we left The Bar... We were teasing a major decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the case of Texas versus United States. That was the U.S. District Court case from about a year ago. In that case, the court held that the ACA's mandate to purchase health insurance or pay a penalty was not constitutional. And if that sounds familiar, well, in 2012, the Supreme Court had upheld that mandate as a tax. And then in 2017, Congress zeroed out that tax penalty for not buying health insurance. And well, you know, without that tax, the court ruled the mandate was unconstitutional, could not be severed from the ACA. Just about the entire ACA had to be struck down. That decision was very quickly appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And, you know, as kind of a year end and present for us during the holidays, we were really hoping to have a decision before our last episode of 2019. No such luck. The decision came down just hours after our last episode went live. And we promised we'd, we'd tell you about it. Well, To paraphrase Obi-Wan Kenobi, this was not the decision we were looking for. Uh, The Fifth Circuit held, yes, without the tax, the mandate does indeed violate the Commerce Clause. It is unconstitutional. But on the critical issue of severability, the appeals court took a different tack. Looking at the analysis that had been given by the district court, they wanted to see more underlying information with respect to that. Here, Carrie, you're looking at me like... Let's just call it what it is. They punted. They punted it back to the district court because they didn't want to make a hard decision on whether that provision was severable from the from the rest of the ACA or not. Yeah, okay. You know, it, it, I guess it was football season at the time, you know, so they did drop back five and they they took a major punt because the defendants in this case said, you know, we're we're happy to live with a decision that says that the mandate is unconstitutional. We're fine with that as long as you sever the mandate from the rest of the act. Well, the district court did that, but the appeals court said, we want a little more reasoning behind this. Now, when you take a look at NFIB versus Sebelius at the dissents there, they went into pages and pages of analysis as to why guaranteed issue had to fall, community rating had to fall. There were all sorts of, of analyses as to how they it all held together and the mandate could not be severable going into a lot of the legislative history. Rather surprising that the district court didn't do that uh, in this case, uh, but that was the tack they took. So, Carrie, are we likely to see a resolution of this before uh, November 2020? Are we once again going to be scrolling through SCOTUS blogs sometime in June, hoping that, you know, they come rushing out and into the, the cable, you know, TV anchors, you know, rushing to the cameras, telling us what the decision is? As, as fun as that is, and as much as you and I love that stuff, no, the likelihood of a decision coming between before the election in 2020 is probably slim to none. The Supreme Court declined to hear the case on an expedited fashion, so it will have to go through the normal process. The district court will have to rule, any appeals will be considered by the Fifth Circuit, and any appeals from there will have to go up to the Supreme Court. So just from a timing perspective, it seems unlikely that could happen this year. Yeah, so we are not likely to get get the rerun of 2012. But what we are going to get, and we'll just, we will tease this because we have a little bit more control over the timing. Next month's episode occurs in March of 2020. Uh, For those of you who are keeping track, that will be the 10th anniversary 
of the Affordable Care Act. And the bar is going to have a retrospective on the on the ACA, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what we can still look forward to, uh, and taking a look at all those debates uh, that they've been having on the Democratic and Republican side as to what the next step in health care reform is. We, we had a little uh, little contretemps last night in uh, in South Carolina where the, where the Democrats went at it on, uh, on health care. And uh, we're likely to see more of that in, in the next couple of months. So if it's the uh, anniversary of the ACA, do you think I should bake a cake like I have for the anniversary of ERISA in years past? Yeah, I think I think that'd that be just fine. Way too geeky. No, we will, no. You know what? We can we can go we can go with the cake. I, I I will not turn down cake under any circumstances. So, but we do have some other things that are going on now that uh, the kerfuffle over impeachment uh, is over, and Congress can get back to can you say kerfuffle five times fast. I can say kerfuffle. Three or four times before it begins to sound like falafel, which, you know, cakes, falafel, you know, we haven't even had lunch yet. So this is actually getting getting pretty hungry here. But we we are back to legislating and we're back into one of our favorite discussions here, surprise medical bills. And Carrie, what is the latest coming out of Washington on so, that? Surprise. We're still talking about surprise medical bills. Um, we haven't seen any resolution of the issue, as our listeners will recall. There seems to be a consensus that something has to be done about surprise medical bills and that patients shouldn't be on the hook for these excessive bills when they see an out-of-network provider in an emergency situation or they go to an in-network facility but are seen by an out-of-network provider at that facility. So as I said, there seems to be consensus that patients should be on the hook for this, but the dispute comes down to how much should the plans be paying the providers in these situations. So we have four bills currently pending in Congress, three in the House and one in the Senate. The various bills are pretty similar with respect to what patients must pay in emergencies and and when they're treated by those out-of-network doctors in the in-network facilities. But these bills differ on how to resolve the discrepancy in payments between plans and providers. So again, as we've discussed before, plans would prefer to pay an in-network median benchmark rate, and providers are supporting legislation that includes more of an arbitration process. All of the bills include a baseball-style arbitration process, which just means that both parties submit a final offer to the arbitrator, and the arbitrator picks one. But the House Ways and Means Committee bill allows arbitration for any medical bills, any dispute over the payments, while the other bills set a limit for expenses above $750 or $25,000 when it comes to air ambulance services, um, the amount the, the dispute has to exceed those amounts before either party can can take the dispute to arbitration. Well, so this this actually presents an, an interesting. Uh, I mean, you, you always have this this conflict. I mean, employers not surprisingly want to know what their costs are ahead of time. So a fixed rate, as as you've suggested here, is something that employers are are obviously going to going to you know lean more towards because that's better than the uncertainty of arbitration. Providers, on the other hand, you know they want to get paid as much as they can. You know, and not surprisingly, uh, as much as they can uh, for every service. Uh, that's there's nothing unusual about that. But you know, Congress decides to settle on a compromise here and saying, well, we're going to do it both ways. We're going to have fixed rate up to seven hundred fifty dollars, and then arbitration above that. And when you get into, I mean, seven hundred fifty dollars, there are are small claims court you know ceilings that are higher than seven hundred fifty dollars. I mean, that's you know, when the air ambulance bills alone are going to be taken way out of that. You know, it's more like a split the difference type of thing. But really, you know, in terms of drawing a fine line, they're kind of erasing the line and doing both at the same time. Right. In, in three of the bills, in the Ways and Means Committee bill, everything could go to arbitration. There's no set limit. And just to be clear, the $750 would not apply to air um, ambulance mm-hmm. services. Those would, ha- would could only go to arbitration in those three bills. 
if the amount exceeds $25,000. So, you know, there's a recognition that air ambulance services are much more expensive, but to your point, $750 is really a drop in the bucket when you're talking about medical expenses. So is that really a compromise or not, I think is the question. Back on the air ambulance services, the uh, surprise billing for those services are prohibited in the Senate Health Committee bill and the House Energy and Commerce bill, which is essentially a compromise piece of legislation between both of those committees. They're also prohibited in the House Education and Labor Committee bill, but not in the House Ways and Means Committee bill. But the Ways and Means Committee bill does require air ambulance service providers to report certain data to the government. That particular bill doesn't address air ambulance services per se, but it does require certain data to be reported So, for transparency purposes. So individuals can see what these costs are and, and what percentage they make up of the health care. You've spoken a lot here about how how there are different committees with with different jur- jurisdictions, and even you know energy and commerce versus ways and means things like that reminds me of those interdisciplinary majors, you know, in, in college where you pick you know one from one department, one from the other department. But is there any sort of consensus emerging on this, or do we have Democrats and Republicans move, moving into their traditional corners uh, regarding these types of? Well, this of- isn't a partisan bill, so you you see all of the parties mixed up, some supporting one bill over another, and it's not breaking down along party lines. I do think we'll probably see some resolution in terms of the discrepancy between these bills before May. There's a tax extenders bill that must pass in May or certain temporary tax provisions will expire. So the thought is that surprise medical billing could be uh, included in that tax extenders package. And so we could see some resolution on this by May. And then we'll know how it all is play out. So we're, we're not looking at a, a separate piece of legislation, the the Surprise Medical Bill Act of, of 2020. We're looking at putting this into a larger package. Well, I gave up my crystal ball a long time ago, but um, if I did have to take a bet, I would bet that we see it as part of a larger package, not a standalone bill. So there might actually be some progress here here in Washington. Uh, now, now, does that same prospect for progress extend to the area of prescription drug prices, which we've been, been dealing a lot with over the last couple of months? Yeah, I think it's a little less likely when it comes to prescription I'm kind of pushing it on that one. Yeah, I think you're pushing it because that does break down more along party lines. So you have the House Democratic bill, which would uh, allow the government to negotiate drug prices for Medicare and the private market, as well as include some other provisions like requiring drug companies to pay rebates if prices increase faster than inflation in both Medicare and Plans. Now, government negotiating drug prices, I mean, my understanding is that government really doesn't negotiate drug prices. Government kind of waits a little bit longer to get what they want. I mean, I think the Republicans are calling this price controls. I mean, is that is, is that you know, a fair statement of their position? I think that is a fair statement of their position and is also the reason why we won't see the Republican-led Senate take up this bill anytime soon. There is a House Republican bill. It would require manufacturers to provide notification and explanation of list price hikes that exceed 10% in a single year or 25% in three years. So it wouldn't necessarily require rebates like the House bill does, but it would require the drug manufacturers to disclose their price hikes. There are some similar bills on on the Senate side. You have the Senate Finance Committee bill, which does have some bipartisan support, actually. And that would require rebates if drug companies increase prices faster than inflation in Medicare. And then the Senate Health Committee bill, which has some transparency provisions, along with some provisions that would increase the production of generic drugs to get those to market more quickly. But 
as we said, I don't think we're likely to see much movement on this, particularly given the fact that it's an election year and neither party wants to give the other one a win on this. No, oh, geez, it's surprising to find politics in, in well, I'm shocked, shocked, shocked to find politics in, in, in Washington, D.C. But but I guess there seems to be a trend here, uh, at, at least on the prescription drug side. The Trump administration had issued several regulations last year regarding drug pricing, uh, requiring disclosure prices and ads, things like that. They didn't do too well in, in the courts because I I think the courts, you know, if I'm recalling correctly, the court struck those down. But there does seem to be this split now that's emerging, which is very different than what you described on the surprise medical bill side. You have Democrats who are, who are much more in favor of being able to regulate prices, to fix prices and say, this is this is how much we're going to pay and, and not going to pay any more. Whereas on the Republican side, it seems that they, the Republicans in the Senate are picking up on the Trump administration policy here of trying to have more disclosure, not so much not so much regulation of the prices that that the pharmaceutical companies pay, but kind of disclosing it and and trying to get a justification of it. So it, it seems like a, a milder form of public pressure, for lack of a better term. But it also just seems to me, I'm, I'm surprised to say that there's no consensus on this, because I would, I would think there'd be even more consensus on the prescription drug side. Prescription drug pricing and, and the cost of, of these things, as we've seen from these, these debates uh, that the Democrats have on, on the presidential campaign, everybody's concerned about, about prescription drug pricing. Uh, even, and the administration has said it's, it's a big issue for them. You're, you just seem more pessimistic on that well, than I on do. the surprise medical bill side. Because I think the interested parties are so far away from determining what's the best approach to getting prescription drug costs down. I, I agree with you 100%. Everybody thinks it's a problem. But in terms of the solution, there's not an agreement on it. And because it is such a popular position that prescription drugs are too high and need to come down, there's more electoral fallout to give someone a win on this than, than someone else. So I think the election year politics are more prevalent when we're talking about prescription drug prices than when we're talking about surprise medical mm-hmm. billing. Yeah, and, and also the uh, another thing that, that seemed to have fallen off the radar screen here is the idea, whole idea of reimporting drugs from, from outside the country. I know there are, there are some, that might be one or two state programs that are looking at that. I mean, you, you know Matt Gibbs, uh, who's who's head of our pharmacy practice. Matt Matt was, was telling me when we met with him in Atlanta last month, Matt was telling Telling me, you know, that the idea of reimporting drugs from Canada is, is something that has has been catching on in in the policy arena. Well, he was telling me that that the state of California alone reimporting the entire drug supply of the nation of Canada, because given the demand for drugs and just the different the the similarities, I should say, in the population between the population of California and population of Canada. Uh, so when you look at this whole idea of reimportation, you know, there's there are a lot of forces within the United States that are opposed to this. Uh, but there are also the, the countries that we reimport the drugs from aren't too crazy about, you know, losing their drug supply to the United States either. Uh, so when you look at, at Canada, you know, they're, they would not be crazy about you know, sending all of their drugs south of the border. Yeah, so I think that um, is definitely a wait and see issue. So we're not likely to get a resolution on before the the election. But JD, we also have a new segment for the bar. Do you want to tell us about that? Uh, yes, indeed, we do. Next month, we will be kicking off a new segment for next month's episode that we call "Ask the Bartender." If you have a question on the topics that we cover during today's episode, or or any episode we've had in the past, and in fact, we're just about any other healthcare legislation that you'd like to question us about, please email us at health at aon.com. Uh, your question could be featured in next month's episode. So again, that's health, H-E-A-L-T-H, at aon.com. And we will be happy to uh, to read your question on our next episode. But we still have here 
as part of our part of our episode last call. So, Carrie, in just five weeks, and we we did a lot of stuff on the Avengers last year. So, you know, equal time over here. The granddaddy of all movie franchises is going to hit the cinemas next month. Actually, April tenth, the twenty fifth James Bond movie, No Time to Die, premieres here in the United States. And the producers have released the new title song by the youngest performer ever to perform a Bond song. And Carrie, when I heard. This my reaction was why is Billy Idol performing a Bond song? But I I guess that's not correct. Billy Eilish. Billy Eilish. Okay, so I'll be honest. Who is Billy Eilish? Billy Eilish is a phenomenal singer, and I've heard the new song. I have to say it's a tad bit depressing, but she's a great singer. Um, it's a great song. You know, I'm not sure it's up there with Sheena Easton's For Your Eyes Only or Duran Duran of You to a Kill. And you're looking at me very skeptically. No, no, that's, that's, that's quite, that's quite okay. I, I, I go back to Shirley Bassey and Goldfinger and Diamonds are Forever. I have her, I have heard the song. I, out of curiosity, I, I downloaded it. She has a great voice. It's a very haunting melody. Uh, I think it fits right in there with, uh, with Skyfall and, and Spectre. And, and, uh, that was, I think, uh, Sam Adele. Smith and Adele. Uh, did those so uh, so yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it I've seen every Bond movie in the theaters that's how old I am I've actually gone to the theaters for these rather than streaming services well and I'm a child of the 80s referencing Sheena Easton <laughs> 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 well looking forward to that and, uh, and also to our next month's episode on our retrospective on the ACA that's our report for today uh, we'd like to thank our producer Danielle Ashbaugh for all of us here at Aon I'm J.D. Pirro and I'm Carrie Willis thanking you for your time this time and until next time the bar is closed we